The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning of verse 14, all right? Will you follow along with me there? And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So again, the, the recap from last week, we urge you, brothers, this is not uh, directed to believers, this is directed, uh, excuse me, to uh, leaders, this is directed to all believers. And remember, last week we talked about each believer is responsible for the peace within the church body, all right? It's your individual responsibility to protect and maintain and to cultivate the peace within the church body. Um, We need you. So we talked about last week, admonishing the idol is one of our responsibilities to one another. The idol are the disorderly, literally. Um, And there are many reasons why people are are idle. Some are lazy. Some misunderstand their gifting where they fit within the body of Christ. And most commonly, it's a worship problem, right? They worship convenience and they worship their comfort more than they worship the Lord. And we're commanded to admonish them. That doesn't mean rebuke them. That doesn't mean send them away. We're commanded to to correct them, to lovingly correct them and put them back in order. All right. And then we talked about we are called to encourage the faint hearted until the Lord's return. We will constantly have the discouraged, the broken hearted, the hurting uh, among us within us as brothers and sisters will constantly have that among us. And we're called no matter the circumstance, no matter how messy it might be, we're called to encourage them, come alongside them and encourage them. So again, remember, each believer is responsible for the peace within the church body. And we're continue with that thought today in verse 14 with the, with the next responsibility, which is what? Help the weak. Now, what does help mean here? Well, it means exactly what you think it means. It means aid them or, or care for them. But who are the weak? One could argue, uh, like, we're talking about illness, like physical strength. However, I think the context of that would not show that that, that would show that that's not exactly what he's referring to. Um, however, you should help the weak, right? If you if physical weak, like if if you see me trying to lift something heavy, help me because I'm weak. All right, and so I absolutely help me. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about a physical strength. But he's talking about spiritual strength, and I believe the reference to weak is a reference to those weak in faith. The reason I believe that is what Paul wrote in Romans 14.1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Romans 15.1, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So am I saying that there, there are those in us with perfect strength of faith and there are those who can be described as weak in their faith, right? Am I saying that that's true, that universally there are those in this room who are, are strong in their faith, there are those in this room who are weak in their faith? Absolutely not. I don't think that's what Paul's claiming here. Uh, I think that Paul's referring to a specific strength of faith that the Lord granted him. If you look at the context of Romans 14 and 15, that some people were being dogmatic about what food that they ate. Like some people were saying, I, I can't eat this meat because it was sacrificed to idols, okay? It would be sin for me. I will not be pleasing God if I do that. Some others believe that you could worship. One day was more holy than another one. One day was reserved uh, for worship more than another one, all right? And you couldn't worship 
on other days. And Paul is saying like, look, I, I don't have that weakness of faith. I have an understanding and a strength of faith there that the Lord granted me. You look at Romans 14 too, you'll see exactly how specific he is. He says, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. So again, he's saying this particular strength, I've got it. All right. I've got a strong faith here because the Lord has, has gifted it to me. I Quick side note, look at Romans 14, 2 again. Who does he call weak? Vegetarians. Just saying. I don't know. Like, just saying. A weakness of faith. Vegetarians. I don't know. But I don't, you figure that out. But Paul is not claiming to have perfect strength. He also describes himself as the cheapest of sinners. He also goes on to say that the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. In fact, he had a pride problem. The Lord gave him a thorn in his flesh. I don't know what it was, but he gave him some sort of thorn in his flesh. And if you read his description as to why, he says, so it keeps me from exalting myself. He had such a pride issue that the Lord said, I need to wound you. I need to put this thorn in your flesh so that you don't continue to exalt yourself over me. Paul was not perfect. He didn't have perfect strength of faith. However, in this area, dealing with food in holy days, the Lord had given him strong faith. And we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. None of us have arrived. That's why we continue to press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. A great example of this is John the Baptist. In Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says this about him. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. All right, so he's got strength of faith. We could say that, right? This guy is out there. He is, he is completely uh, 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 being just uh, uh, ridiculed for, for following the Lord there. He's, he's just really coming against that, but he's standing strong for what, for what the Lord has convicted him of, for the faith that God has given him. However, if you keep reading, he's later reprimanded in that same chapter by Jesus. He's sitting in a prison and he, he sends, he's about to have his head cut off and he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, hey, are you really Jesus? Because like, I, I know I baptized you. I know that whole spirit of God thing and like the, the voice of God. But you know, I, I've only eaten bugs for a while. So maybe I was hearing something because I'm in jail. You understand? I'm about to have my head cut off. Are you really Jesus? And Jesus gives him this very soft reprimand. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, he's saying, truly comforted, truly content are those who don't doubt me. When my plans don't look like theirs, when they don't doubt me, they have, they have true contentment. And so we see John the Baptist, although he was the greatest born among women, what? He also, uh, he, he, excuse me, he dealt with doubt. So can I show you some weaknesses of faith that I found in the early church and I believe are still hanging around today. And we'll see that, that we all suffer weakness of faith at some point. Number one, I want to show you Peter. So Jesus is walking out on water. You guys know the story, right? Jesus is walking out on water. They don't know who it is. They become fearful, and then they, they recognize it's Jesus. And, and so Peter says, look, if it's really you, Jesus, call me to yourself. And so Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out, right, into the, into the water, and he's probably thinking this is pretty stinking awesome. And then he begins to be fearful, and he begins to sink. And Jesus says what? Jesus said, you of little faith. You have weak faith. Why did you doubt? What did he, what did he doubt? He doubted Jesus' ability to sustain him. Peter showed a weakness of faith. He doubted Jesus' 
power. Jesus called him, but then he became distracted. He looked around and he saw those winds and the waves, and he said, man, Jesus is real powerful, but these winds, this, this wind is heavy. These waves are huge. Like, I've seen him heal people, but I don't know about this storm, all right? And he started to doubt the power of Jesus. And so, is that anyone here? Is anyone else like that? Don't, don't raise your hand, but is that you here? I thought maybe you might say, I thought Jesus called me to follow him, but it's really hard to battle my sin, and maybe I'm not really following him because I don't know if I can ever conquer this temptation in my life. I know Jesus can overcome my relationship issues and help me mend them, but, but this relationship is hanging on by a thread. I just don't know if the Lord can bring reconciliation here. I know Jesus called me to get involved in others' lives and, and, and show them love and meet their needs, but their needs are huge. My resources are small. And you know what? It's really hard to love them because they're kind of jerks, okay? So I don't know, Lord. I don't know if I can do what you've called me to do. Is that anyone here? Sometimes we doubt his power. The disciples on the boat with Jesus, the second group of people I want to show you. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus gets on a boat with his disciples and he goes to sleep. And you know the story? A storm comes up, right? And they start to take in water. And so they're thinking like, okay, all right. Okay, I know Jesus is over there. But like now there's really water coming in. But we're still good, right? We're going to be okay. And then all of a sudden like some rope snaps or something. And they're thinking, okay, look, I don't know anymore. I don't, does he even care? Wherever you're drowning, does he even care? And that's how they woke him up. They go over and they shake him and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus responded, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The disciples showed a weakness of faith. They doubted Jesus' care for them. Is that anyone in here? Maybe you say, you know what? Yeah, Jesus loves me. I know that song. Jesus loves me, but my marriage is falling apart. Yeah, I know Jesus loves me, but my child is sick and will probably be sick for the rest of their life. Yeah, I know Jesus loves me, but if he knows me like I know me, then there's no possible way he could love me. Is that anyone else in here doubting God's care for you? It's a weakness of faith. The audience at the Sermon on the Mount, they heard Jesus say this in Matthew 6. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of what? Little faith, weak faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? They doubted Jesus' provision. Is that anyone in here? You might say, yeah, God will provide, but this bill collector won't stop calling me. Yeah, 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 God will provide, but I don't know if my car is going to make it out of the neighborhood. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. God will provide, but I have to be out of my house by Friday. Yeah, God will provide, but if I don't save this amount of money this month, then my retirement isn't going to be what I need it to be. Is that anyone else here? Maybe you're more like the Roman church. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He also says in chapter 5, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There were those in the Roman church who would suffer great persecution. Their temptation would be to doubt the sovereignty of God. Does he really have it under control? When my world's falling apart, do I really believe that he has it under control? Is that anyone in here? 
You might say, yeah, God's in control, right? That's something we say around the church. That's a nice thing. It looks good on a bumper sticker. I'll say it all day. God's in control. But you know what? What good could possibly come of this ailment I can't get over? You know what? God is in control, and God's using this for my good. But what could I possibly learn from losing my career? Yeah, I know God's in control, but you know what? My spouse isn't coming back. Is that anyone else in here? Like, is God really in control? It's a weakness of faith. The last one is the Corinthian church. Some in the, in the early church from past beliefs held that, we already mentioned it, held that eating uh, uh, certain meat was wrong because it was saint, sacrificed to idols. And Paul says their conscience is weak because of it. 1 Corinthians 8, 7, he says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food uh, as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Paul says it doesn't matter if you eat it or you don't eat it. And some of the early church understood that. And so they felt that they had superiority because of their knowledge, right? And they would say, like, man, they are weak in their conscience. I'm going to eat. If you're not going to eat it, I'm going to eat it, all right? Because I know the truth. I know it's okay to eat. And so they, they started to participate in feasts that would hurt other believers and hurt their weak conscience, hurt their weak faith because they felt strong in their faith. Verse 8. Through nine, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Both of these people groups had weak faith because they doubted the wisdom of God and how to please God. Some people doubted the wisdom of God and believed that you know what? The way I'm going to please God, I'm not going to eat this meat, right? Those are the weak faith vegetarians. I'm just saying. I don't know why it's in there, but it's in there. All right. Some, some believe that they could please God by, by not eating certain meat. Some believe they could please God by exercising their right to eat meat at the cost of their brother and sister. And they were both wrong. They both doubted the wisdom of God and how to please God. Instead of pleasing God through obedience, they tried to please God through not eating meat or eating meat. Is that anyone in here? And you say, I love to eat meat. So yes. Like, no, I don't, I don't think we're dealing with meat sacrificed to idols too much. But has anyone tried to please God through their own ways? And so the way God has outlined. You might say, like, God loves worship, so I'll take that seriously. I'll make time for that. But I won't make time to serve my community. That's a, that's a, a, a weakness of faith. God loves music. He created it and he's to be revered. And I believe my preference of music to be the most reverential. Therefore, my preference is right. It's a weakness of faith. God loves hard work. So I'll dedicate my life to that and fit prayer in when I can. It's a weakness of faith. God is to be respected. And the way you respect God is you dress a certain way. That's a weakness of faith. God loves our community of believers, so I'll hang out with them and fellowship with them, but they better not try to correct me or tell me how to live my life. It's a weakness of faith. Is that anyone else in here? We have areas of weakness in our faith. No one has arrived. And what's our call to those weak in faith? To help them, right? We're called to help them. How do you help? Now, I know probably at this point it would make sense for me to say, well, if you follow these five steps and they're all alliterated so you'll remember them, and if you do this, it's all going to be good, right? And all of a sudden their weakness will become strength and you'll hold hands, you'll sing Kumbaya, and the world will be saved. It's not that simple. It's a little bit more complex than that. In fact, 
It's such a wisdom issue that it, it's completely different per situation. It, you know what? It, in fact, it matters if you're dealing with someone younger than you, a peer, or someone older than you. When you're dealing with someone who has a weakness of their faith, the way you deal with it, the way you help them matters based on if they're younger than you, they're your peer, or they're older than you. I'll prove it to you. If they're younger than you, you're, to tr- you're called to treat them as a brother or sister. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 through 2. So you're called to treat them in that way. Also, you're, you have an obligation, according to Titus 2, to those that are younger. I'm speaking to everyone in this room. To those that are younger to you, you're called to uh, uh, live as an example. And you have an obligation to train them up. Again, we're not talking to the the leadership of the church. We're not talking to the professional Christians. You get what I'm saying? I'm talking to every single person. You can't blow them off. You can't recognize their weakness of faith and ignore it. You're called to be responsible to pursue them and to train them. Isn't that incredible? You're responsible to observe their weakness of faith and help them. Who are you training? Who are you helping? If they're your peer, you're called to treat them differently. You're called to treat them as a brother and sister, but also you have an obligation to hold them accountable in a way that you don't to the younger. In Proverbs 27, 17, it says, as iron sharpens iron. Your responsibility to your peer is to live your lives together in community and sharpen one another's faith as you go. That's your responsibility to your peer. You should see their weakness in faith because you should be living your life with them. You shouldn't have to ask them, hey, man, what's, what's your weakness? You should see it. You should be living life together and sharpen one another as you go. If they're older than you, it's a different situation. We're called in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, to treat them as fathers and mothers if they're older. You know, it's funny, like, I, I, we, I was talking to a friend of mine recently, just the past couple of months, we were talking about this idea of, of, of in our lives having people younger than us, training them, and older than us, like, what's our responsibility there, and and, and so, like, as we notice weaknesses in faith in people that were older than us, my response was to treat them as a peer. My response was to treat them as a brother and sister, and I was wrong. You know, I think about, like, growing up. If, I, if, if my dad was in error, would I speak to him the same way I spoke to my, my brother? Absolutely not. I would not be standing here today. Do you understand? Like, there, it would not be good, all right? Like, think about that, right? If my brother's in error... What do I do? Dear brother, I believe that you need to change your ways. No, like what would I do? I'd beat him until he agreed with me, right? With my father, if my father was in error, what would I do? I wouldn't try to beat, he'd beat me until I agree with him, right? I would go respectfully to him. In the same way, those that are older, we're called to treat as fathers and mothers in all purity. So we also have an obligation not to rebuke, not to train the older, but to encourage the older. First Timothy 5.1 tells us that. So your responsibility is to encourage them in their walk, not to rebuke them as you might appear. You already see that these, these tips I might give you on, on how to help the weak, they're, they're, they might not be universally um, applicable to your situations, right? This isn't black and white. This is gonna be difficult. This is a wisdom issue. So my best piece of advice I can give you today before I tell you the rest, my best piece of advice I can give you is seek the Lord. Because it's a wisdom issue. He's gonna give you guidance. He's gonna give you clarity in these individual situations, all right? But how do we help? Let's, let's see. So let's see some, some ideas here. Number one, 
share the same goal. Your goal in helping them isn't to be right or to have them on your side. Your goal is their joy in Christ. That's your goal. When you see a brother or sister weak in their faith, your goal is for them to experience the joy of strength in faith. Do you understand? That should be your goal. Romans 14.1 says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but what? Not to quarrel over opinions. Don't welcome him so you can argue with him. Welcome him so that you can uh, uh, correct him and, and put him towards the joy in Christ of strengthening his faith. You know, it's hard. It's really hard not to argue with someone when you're convinced you're right. You know, ask my wife, right? Isn't that what, what marriage is all about? Marriage is a relationship in which one person is always right and the other is a husband, right? Isn't that how it works? It's really hard not to argue with someone when, when you know you're right. But if you attempt to help someone who's weak in their faith, if you attempt to help them with, the, with your goal to help them not to be their joy in Christ, but your goal to be right or, or to try to get them on your side or to help you fight other people with this, it's ultimately not helpful. It's ultimately not glorifying to God and will not be blessed of God. So share the same goal. The second one, share your time. Your living example of strength of faith will inspire. A friend of mine in college... Um, he used, to, uh, he used to ask me to come to his dorm room and, and pray with him uh, one night a week. And, and when I went and prayed with him, he never sat me down and said, Okay, Grant, this is how we're going to pray. All right, buddy? You do this. You do this. You need to remember this. You know what he did? He prayed. My faith in that area of prayer was weak. It was so, so weak. But through his example, just listening to him pray, watching him pray, watching his demeanor before the Lord changed the way I thought about prayer forever, forever. So he shared his life with me, and the Lord changed me. But remember this, and this is where this might not be universally applicable to each situation. Remember this, don't needlessly harm them by your example. Romans 14, 13 says, So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. Using Romans 14 as an example, right? So he, he knew that it was not wrong to eat meat that wasn't sacrificed to idols. However, there were some whose conscience were weak and they would be deeply offended and it would deeply wound their relationship. It would deeply affect them and they would lose all influence in their life. Paul absolutely could have thrown a feast, had all the meat of idols brought together and said, hey, Christian vegetarians, come here, watch this. This is awesome, right? He could have done that and said, look, nothing bad's happening to me. It's all good. But he didn't. His example would have harmed them. And so he chose not to be a stumbling block. So if your living example is harmful to a brother and sister, find another way to help them. So share your time, share your life, your example, but also share your time, share your prayer time for them. Pray for the Lord's understandings. Ephesians 1.18, um, listen to Paul's prayer. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul didn't say, I'm going to enlighten the eyes of your heart. I'm going to give you understanding through the words that I write. What does he say? I'm asking the Lord to give you that understanding because it comes only from the Lord. So pray for their eyes to be open. Thirdly, share the truth. Speak to it. Speak to that weakness of faith. If they doubt his power and ability, speak to them, Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. If they doubt his care, speak to it. Romans 8, 38, nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
If they doubt his provision, speak to it. Philippians 4, 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. If they doubt his sovereignty, speak to it out of Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. If they doubt the true ways to please God, speak to it out of Hosea 6, 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And I want you to remember this as you speak to it. Don't force truth down their throat. Offer it. Truth is like a meal, right? Offer it to them. You can't make them eat it. Remember that the Holy Spirit is the one who changes people. You don't. When when the Lord gives you a message to speak, it's not up to you to speak so eloquently and, and, and to talk them into the truth of God. That's a work of God. When they grasp something that's righteous, that's not in them to grasp that. That's God working in them, all right? So, so that's up to the Lord to do. So understand that that weight, that burden is not on you. The Holy Spirit changes people. You don't. You be faithful to speak truth when it's your opportunity to speak truth. Don't forget that. The last way to help is the next point in this verse. It says, be patient with them all. The idle, the faint-hearted, the weak. They can all be draining in their own ways, right? The idle, for example, it's frustrating, you know? We got so much work to do. What are you doing? Like, get up. Let's go. It can be frustrating. The faint-hearted, carrying someone's burden is difficult, especially an emotional burden. It's not easy to be there for somebody. It can take a lot out of you. Am I right? Am I right? Speaking about emotion, I was uh, reading on Facebook. Someone posted something about crying. And they said that when a person cries and the first drop of tears comes from the right eye, it's from happiness. When the first drop comes from the left, it's pain. And then someone's comment underneath it spoke profoundly to me as a parent. They said, if you cry from both eyes at the same time, you probably stepped on a Lego. So there are emotional, there are emotional burdens that are draining to carry, right? When you're weak, you can feel helpless as you present that truth to them and they continue in error. They continue in their weakness. That shrink doesn't just come, right? You just feel helpless. What more can I say? What more can I do, all right? Grow up. Let's go. Get over this. It can be incredibly helpless feeling. But we're told to be patient. And true patience is a mark of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit. What's one of them? Patience. It's a true mark of the Holy Spirit. And I said true patience. I don't mean fake patience. And you say, what's the difference? There is a difference. Fake patience, or as I call it, worldly patience. What this world says is patience. It's not true patience. And there's two examples of it. There's either uh, the time bomb patience that the world offers, and there's the doormat patience that the world offers. Time bomb patience is an unkind endurance with a memory. For example, you offend someone, and they just don't say anything. And then after weeks and weeks and weeks, it builds up, and they blow up on you, right? That's time bomb patience. That's the patience the world can offer us. And let me give you a tip. If you're a newlywed in here and you haven't had a conflict or she hasn't told you something that you've done that's gotten on her nerves yet, take her to a super nice restaurant today, all right? Make sure there's a lot of witnesses and ask her, is, have you been time bomb patiencing with me, all right? Like, is there something going on? Again, make sure there's a lot of witnesses and take her to a really nice place. But that's one of the patients the, the world offers. It's fake. It's false. 
There's also doormat patience, which is a kind endurance without a memory. Someone who endures your offense and will not bring it back up, but instead enables you to continue to commit that offense. That's, that's doormat patience. And there's a documentary I watch called Bully. And it's about, uh, it's about kids being bullied in, in our schools. And, and there's this kid they followed on camera. And with the documentarians there, the kids continued to bully this kid. I mean, like, choke him on the bus, like, beat him over the head. Like, there's a camera right in your face. And it didn't matter. They kept bullying him over and over again. And in the film, he's described as very patient. Very patient. Is that patience? Being a doormat? And enabling people to continue to abuse you? But that's what the world offers. We got time bomb patience and we got doormat patience. But what's true patience? True patience is this kind endurance working toward a resolution. That's how God treats us. He's, he endures us, He's long suffering, and He's very kind, but He works towards a resolution. He doesn't store up uh, wrath against us for our sins, and nor does He ignore them and enable us to continue. In Hebrews 12, 6, it says that He patiently disciplines us and corrects us. That's the Lord. That's how the Lord treats us. That's the Lord's patience with us. And that's how we're to treat others. When someone's idle, don't ignore it. Enable them to continue and don't store it up. Don't store up that how frustrating it is to you and unleash it on them later. Instead, kindly endure it and work with them to remedy their idleness. When someone is fearful, don't ignore it, but instead kindly endure their fear and address it. And, and if it happens again, be patient and deal with it again. When someone's weak faith brings consequences, don't store up wrath against them to unleash on them later and let them have it, but be patient with them and help them. That's true patience. And let's look at finally verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Sad to say, if you're in the church long enough, you will be the victim of evil. If you're in the church long enough, and by long enough I mean like, how long have you been here today? You will be the victim of evil, unfortunately. Maybe as a result of someone's idleness. Maybe as a result of, of their faith being weak. But I want you to remember this. Evil feeds off of evil. Someone gossips about somebody and then you gossip and then they gossip and it continues to gossip about and evil abounds. You hate, then you teach your kids to hate and they teach their friends and their kids to hate and, and evil abounds. Evil feeds off of evil. But we're called not to multiply evil with evil but to cut it off individually and corporately as a community. And how do we do that? Look at the end of verse 15. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So individually, replace the evil response that you had with a good response. Replace the curses with prayers. I'll give you an example. In, in a church that I, I used to be a part of, um, I was wronged by someone. And every time I thought about them, my natural response was an evil response. Well, they did this to me. Well, I'm, I'm going to think this about them. When I speak to people, I'm going to let them know just how evil they are. I'm going to let other people know just how bad this guy is. The only way to cut that cycle of evil was to replace it with good. And so as I, as I started to think about this man, the, the Lord started to enable me to pray for him. And listen, you say, pray for him like, like I can't do that. I'm not saying that I literally just thought of him and I went, Lord, bless him. What a, what a God. No, it was hard. It was, a, it was a white knuckle prayer. Do you understand? 
Lord, I know that you want to bless this guy. I, like, I know that I don't need to be thinking that I want him to just, like, just his house to burn down. But, Lord, like, if you could do that. Right? Like, my prayer, it took a while. But I worked at it through, through the Lord enabling me to work at it. And he broke that cycle. I ran into him recently. And all I felt for him was love. That's all I felt for him. Was that me? No, Grant is ugly and evil and terrible and small. Like, Grant would have loved to, to walk up to him and just, just right, and then run away. That's what I do. Just hit and run away, all right? I'm not going to do much damage. Let's be honest. I'm going to run away. But the Lord enabled me to love him and to forgive him. Why? Because I broke the cycle of evil. I didn't feed it with evil. I replaced it with good. Replace revenge with trust. Someone stole a lot of money from my dad one time, and, and, and uh, he's told this story to me before, and um, I couldn't. He never told me the amount when I, when I was a kid. He never told me the amount. But I guess because I was living with him, he didn't want me to, to, to take up his, his cause, right? And he told me later what it was um, after I'd moved out. And it was a lot. It was a lot of money, right? And I knew what my dad did during, the, during that time. He didn't pursue this person. He didn't pursue them legally. He didn't go after them. Instead, he forgave them. He let them know he forgave them. And he trusted the Lord in it. He trusted that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I'll repay. And he showed compassion. He made a huge impact for the kingdom in that. He broke that cycle of revenge with trust in the Lord. We can do that individually. We can also do it corporately. Don't cultivate an environment for evil, but for good. We as a church don't need to abide gossip. That's one way we can help. Silence it. We as a church don't need to abide murmuring. Replace murmuring with positive speech or encouragement toward resolution. We as a church don't need to abide idleness, but instead admonish those who are idle. We as a church don't need to abide weakness of faith, but instead help them. We need to be proactive. We no longer need to abide evil in our churches. There's a church that uh, I heard of in, uh, in Jackson, Tennessee, that started like so many churches do. Some people got mad and they left, right? They didn't like this or that and they left and they started their own church. And so this pastor that they called, the, the pastor that did that, the church was doing okay and then, then he left and church started to suffer. And so they called this pastor, this new pastor in and he had a public service of repentance. And he brought the leadership from the church that they broke from to the church and they admitted their wrongdoing and they asked for forgiveness. Isn't that incredible? They chose no longer to abide evil in their church. And they dealt with it head on. And their church is thriving now in missions and in the kingdom work, right? Isn't that incredible? Look at the end of verse 15. This is what I want to close with. To everyone. Do good to everyone. Why does that matter? Well, what does it matter if we, if we do good outside of these walls to other people? Like, like, it's hard enough to do good to you, okay? It's been hard for me as I preach not to just throw insults at you, all right? It's hard, okay? It's hard not, it's hard to do good in here. What does it matter about to everyone? What's the point of our unity and our peace? In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, I think we'll find a hint. Paul says this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So through the church, we're going to display the wisdom of God. Ephesians talks about the wisdom of God. What is the wisdom of God? Ephesians talks about the wisdom of God being the mystery of God. Do you know what the mystery of God is? 
Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What he's saying is the mystery is that God is not just exclusive to the Jews. He's available to all. The mystery of the gospel is the unity of the gospel. The mystery that we reveal to the world is that no one is left out of the gospel. That's the mystery of the gospel. And what a better way to show them the unity that we have in Christ than by, than by displaying that in our community. What a better way to show them the mystery of the gospel that no one's left out. I don't care where you came from. I don't care who your mama is. What a better way to show them that than in our church together, old and young, black and white, rich and poor, idle and active, comforted and hurting, strong in faith, weak in faith. So it matters for the gospel if you admonish the idol. It matters for the mystery of the gospel if you comfort the faint-hearted. It matters to the mystery of the gospel if you help the weak. It matters to the mystery of the gospel if we're patient with one another. It matters for the mystery of the gospel that we replace evil with good. How we live together in this community matters to the mystery of the gospel out there. It's our responsibility. I'd like to um, close in prayer with you um, over our responsibilities to, to one another. Um, and then we'll, we'll have the privilege of taking communion together. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you for um, calling us together, calling us um, heavenward towards you. I thank you for saving us, for giving us a new identity, making us a new family together. Um, but Lord, uh, may, we, may you help us take our calling to one another very seriously. It's easy to get into the, um, the club mindset. These are just people I get together and we just hang out and have a good time. It's difficult. It's difficult to really um, acknowledge our responsibilities to one another. That's incredibly difficult. But Lord, may we see, um, may we see them as they are, as, as very serious. May we no longer um, abide evil here. Lord, may, may we replace evil with good as a church. May, may we no longer um, let the weak be weak. May we come alongside them and, and strengthen them May we no longer ignore the faint-hearted, but comfort them. Lord, we just, we ask that you would help us. Help us to be children reflecting their father. God, I, I want to love my brothers and sisters like you called me to love them. I want to love them in a way I can't. I want to love them in a way that, that I am not humanly capable of loving them. I'm selfish, I'm self-centered, I'm egotistical, I'm prideful, I'm corrupt. Lord, I want to love them like you want me to love them. I want to love them like you love them. So would you teach us to do that? Would you teach us um, to love in that way, to love like you? And may we take that seriously as it affects the gospel. 
Lord, would Christ Church stand in unity together with patience for one another, with love for one another, so much so that this world would look at us and wonder. They would look at us and say, how? Why? They would look at us and say, what is that mystery there? And you would use our unity to reveal to them the mystery of the gospel that they aren't left out. And Lord, if there are people in here who that mystery was one they didn't really grasp until today, that they aren't left out, that they're loved by you, they're accepted by you, they can be forgiven, no matter who they are, where they came from, they're not left out. Lord, if there are people today that realize that for the first time, my prayer is that you give them the courage to surrender to you for the first time. Make them your child. Give them the courage to ask for your forgiveness, to simply say to you, Lord, please forgive me. Give them the courage to ask you to take over their life, to simply say, Lord, I don't want to live my way anymore. I want to live yours. I want to be a follower of you for real. Not, not just a church member, not just a religious person, not just somebody who visits church. I want to be your follower. Give them the courage to pray that prayer, to simply say that to you right now. And Lord, thank you for those that do say that prayer. Thank you for saving them, for making them yours, for now and for eternity. We love you. We thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We have an opportunity this morning uh, to take communion together. For those who are, uh, are serving communion, I'd ask you to come forward um, now. Uh, this is a, a great opportunity and, and a wonderful time for us um, to come together and remember the Lord Jesus. Remember His love for us, His sacrifice for us. Um, if, you are, if you're not a believer in this room, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, that's, that's all right. I'm not coming after you. I don't, I'm not going to come find you and hit you with this. Um, but this, this isn't for you. This is for those who follow Jesus. This is for us to remember what he's done for us, remember his sacrifice for us, um, to reflect on that together as a community. Um, and so I want to explain what we're doing here. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so that's what we do. We take this now to remember the Lord Jesus, to reflect on him. So if you're a follower and if you're a follower of Jesus in here, this is for you. It's an opportunity for you to worship in this way. Um, so what we're going to do is uh, we're going to dismiss you by row. You come up, take the bread, dip it in the cup, take it, and return to your seat. Uh, but let me, uh, let me pray for us as we uh, enter this time. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your sacrifice. May we not take this moment lightly. And if there's rebellion in us, if, if there are things in our lives that 
that we are openly welcoming that don't honor you. Lord, would you convict us of that now? And may we lay it down. May we walk away from it this morning as we walk towards your table. So Lord, be lifted up as we remember you. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Fall on us. May, may, the, may the weight of your body being broken for us and your blood spilled out, may the weight of that fall on us this morning and may our response be appropriate with worship. So Lord, be in this time. We love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.